folks, um, we, yeah, here, let me kill my Facebook so I don't get the echo there. Um, so uh, those of you who are watching, we are happy for you to be watching, but you don't know how clumsily this got started. I mean, you know part of it. You know that you just tuned in and all of a sudden we're talking like we don't know what we're doing. That's because I didn't know what I was doing. I, um, I forgot to hit the broadcast button and then I forgot to go live on Facebook. So we started in something like this. Good afternoon. This is Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. And with me is Chase Byers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And then Chase said, hey, everybody. How are you today, Jeff? I'm fine. And then welcome, Drew. Good afternoon, Drew. How are you doing, Jeff? Good to be here today. We did all of that. And it's about that time we realized that the only ones that are involved here, just the three of us, we were talking to each other and nobody else was tuned in. So um, that's how that went. So then we had to get all everything started. All right. So now we've got people watching, I hope. Uh, looks like we do. Hey, Jeff, and, you, you, yesterday on a Tuesday program, I was having similar things and I was watching your video and you were cracking up <laughs> when I was doing all of the shenanigans that yeah, you're doing. Fine. And I'm that's so glad you did that today. Uh, what goes around comes around, doesn't it? We, sow, we reap what we sow or something. <laughs> all right. We're going to, we're going to be talking about first Corinthians five through seven today. Last week we did first Corinthians one through four. I don't know if we'll get all the way through seven or not, but we'll give it a shot. Um, and, and one of the things, guys, we want to do during the webcast today, let's, let's repeatedly remind people that you can send us comments or questions because we're going to get into this mode of, of walking right through the text and somebody might feel like, well, I don't want to interrupt. But, but we probably won't chase a rabbit. If you have a question about uh, extraterrestrial life, we're probably not going to go there. But if we can find any way to connect it to 1 Corinthians 5 through 7, uh, we'll be glad to take your question. Okay, with that, how about we start in? We ready to do this, guys? Yeah, sure. Yeah. At this point in Corinthians, it kind of takes a bit of a turn, doesn't it? It does. It does. The first three chapters, the first four chapters were all about not putting your confidence in the wisdom of men or the persuasive words of an orator or that kind of thing. Put your trust in the word of God. And don't follow after men. And now what happens? Now he's going to turn to a pretty sticky situation. Uh, we're going to be introduced to uh, a problem in the local church there in Corinth, where it would appear that uh, there's a guy in the church who has been having sexual relations with his father's wife. So presumably his stepmom. Um, he's been sleeping with her and Paul has to address the fact that they haven't addressed this. They've just kind of let it go on without having, uh, without fixing it. The whole bunch of things here to talk about in these first few verses, he says, it's actually reported that there is fornication among you. Some of the newer translations say immorality or sexual immorality. Um, fornication is a word that refers to illicit sexual relations uh, it may be a man committing adultery with a woman, not his wife, uh, or a man with another man's wife, or it may be two teenagers in the back seat of a car uh, who are not married to one another, or it might be two men. Uh, the word fornication is used in the book of Jude for those who went after strange flesh, that is that which is contrary to what God has designed, uh, referring to the sin of, of homosexual sin in, um, in Genesis 19 in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, it, it could be any of those things. Uh, but it's interesting here, Paul says, it's actually reported that there's fornication among you and such fornication as not even among the Gentiles. What does that phrase suggest to you? 
I mean, I'm reminded of when Jesus said, let them be to you as a publican and a Gentile. You know, this is the low down of the earth type people that, that it's referring to. And he's saying not even the Gentiles act like this. Yeah, exactly. And so he says specifically, as you mentioned, one of you has his father's wife. And because it doesn't say one of you is with his mother, that you would assume this is not his mother. It must be a stepmother, something like that. But what was the Corinthians attitude about it in the next verse? They were puffed up about it. They're arrogant. You know, it's amazing. It's, it's interesting. Uh, the number of times in this letter, Paul is going to talk about puffed up, how the Corinthians are puffed up one thing or another. They're puffed yeah. up. And we don't really see that word used in other places in the New Testament. It's really only exclusive to first and second Corinthians, right? What does that mean? Puffed up. Well, to inflate, build yourself yeah. up. Yeah, inflated ego, uh, you know, walking around like you know what's best or or that you don't care about things. Um, I, obviously, what comes to my mind and probably a lot of people's mind is a puffer fish, right? Exactly. And, and a puffer fish, uh, whenever they are scared and they are in trouble, they're going to puff themselves up to look bigger than what they actually are to scare off a, a predator. And what they're doing is they're, they're Puffing themselves up. They're making themselves look big and bad and that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm. look at me. Look at me. Look what I'm doing. And, and the thing is, these people are puffed up because they've got a man in their midst who's sleeping with his father's wife. They're proud of that. They're, Jeff, do you think that that's them bragging about their tolerance of people in their church? You know, it, that, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to go back 2,000 years and just based on what's being said right here, and know for certain the mentality. The fact is, throughout First Corinthians, puffed up does mean that they thought too highly of themselves. They were exalting themselves. And here it's connected with the fact that they've got a, a man sleeping with his father's wife, and they're okay with that. It's what it sounds like, and it sure fits. We can see that in today's society, can't we? Yeah, churches pride themselves on their tolerance of, of many other different types of lifestyles, different sins might, people might be involved in without correcting them, and they, they pride themselves in being a safe haven for people who want to continue living that way but want to have a relationship with God. One of the buzzwords that gets thrown around is inclusive. We are an inclusive church. Yeah. And uh, what they mean by that is if you're homosexual, if you're, if you're married to a man, that's all right. That's all right. We can accept all of that. We're, and then they, they, they are proud and puffed up, so they advertise themselves. As, as being for this kind of thing. Planet Fitness Churches, right? The No Judgment Zone? Oh, no, okay. Yeah, there you go. Planet Fitness Churches. I hadn't heard that. Well, we're going to talk about judging as we get down into this chapter. And there was some judging that needed to take place here that wasn't. Well, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus say don't judge? He said, yeah. Matthew 7, verse 1. Don't judge. Yeah. So, well, maybe the Corinthians were right. Well, uh, they're... They're, they're judging based on their own wisdom, not on God's wisdom. When Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged in Matthew 7, he goes on to say, for with what measure you, or for, for and I can't quote it, for what measure you For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Thank you. Thank you. So he's talking about when you, when you judge somebody else by a more strict standard, a harsher standard than you apply to yourself, that's a double standard. It's hypocritical. He talks about the, par the parable of the guy who's got a big beam log sticking out of his eye, but he's worried about somebody else who has a little speck in his eye. Let me get that speck ow, out of here. Ow, ow. Yeah. 
And, and he says, he doesn't say, don't be worried about the guy with speck in his eye. He says, first get the beam out of your own eye, then you can help your brother with his speck. So Jesus is not just saying, don't ever point out a, a flaw in somebody else. He's saying, don't have a double standard where you let yourself off the hook for some big sin, but you're hypercritical of somebody else. And then he goes on and says, give not that which is holy to the dogs. Well, he's not talking about four-footed dogs, and it requires some judgment to know which people are dogs. So people misunderstand what Jesus was saying when he said, do not judge. In this passage, what does Paul say in verse 2 and 3? Verse, uh, I guess, go all the way through verse 5. Well, the problem is, oh, do you want me to read 2 down to verse 5? Let's read it, 2 through 5. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, I've already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've delivered or I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. All right, so Paul says, I've already, my, my translation says in verse 3, uh, have already, as though I were present, judged him. Did yours say judged him, or how did yours say it in verse 3? Uh, though absent in body, I have already judged him uh-huh. Uh-huh. who has so committed this, as though I were present. And then he calls on the Corinthians to be gathered together and deliver this one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Let's take that last part first. Uh, the goal is what? What's the ultimate hope for this individual? I want him to be saved. want him to be saved, sure. But in order for that to happen, he's got to come to terms with his sin. And they're not gonna, he's not going to come to terms with his sin if everybody is saying, oh, you're fine, you're fine, don't worry about it, we're proud of you, we're proud to have you. Uh, he's got to understand it is sin. And so deliver him to Satan. Does this mean take somebody who is one of God's faithful people and kick them out of the body of Christ and put them in Satan's camp? We no, can't. I don't think it means give up on them and, and uh, you, that you don't have a responsibility to do what you can to help him. But the way he is living is only going to influence for, for worse the church that's already there. And so let give him over to what he's doing. If he wants to live that way, whatever, but he can't stay in this church and act that way. Yeah, and the point that I'm trying to stress here is sometimes I think people read this and they think, well, that sounds like you're kicking them out of the church, meaning out of the body of Christ. You're taking somebody who's saved and making them lost. No, his own sin has done that. Uh, All you're doing is saying, if that's the way you're going to live, so be it. The language here where it says to deliver such one as Satan, it's the same language as used in Romans 1 where God gave them up unto vile passions and so on. God didn't take people who were living rightly and cause them to live wrongly. They chose to live that way. And God basically said, if that's the way you're going to go, okay, so be it. And here the point is, let him go that course and just acknowledge that's where he is. So that, as Paul says in in, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, to the end that he'll be ashamed and he'll put to death the works of the flesh. The flesh will be destroyed, is the idea. So, Jeff, in, in, uh, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Yeah. And the word, I have decided, in verse 5, is italicized. I'm under the impression that that's not really there in the Greek. That's correct. So then that makes the statement with verse 4 connected. He says, and I with you, with the power of the, our Lord Jesus, to deliver such a one. So it's like 
that it's under the power and authority of the Lord Jesus. So whatever that is, uh, is a way to explain or understand what, what's happening to this individual. Yeah, and it's not just Paul. I mean, it's, it's by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It's by the name of our Lord Jesus. And then it's Paul with the Christians in Corinth. They're assembled together in his spirit with them all to deliver this one unto Satan. So it's not just Paul saying, I'm right. delivering. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Uh, then we get to verse six, and and you were describing the puffer fish and puffed up. Your Bible actually said arrogant chase. Um, in yes. verse six, he says, "Your glorying is not good." That kind of goes with the the puffed up idea. Does your say your glorying is not good? Verse six. Mine says boasting. Boasting. Mine as well. Yeah, and we were both reading New American Standard. Now, know ye not that little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, you said something about this a moment ago, Chase. You talked about the influence that this individual is going to have on others in the congregation. We have an expression today that's kind of similar. We don't say, we don't usually talk about leaven. We say one what? One bad. One bad apple. Yeah, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. You have one rotten apple in a bag of apples, and that rot is going to spread, that moisture and that bacteria, and it's all going to spread, and they're all going to go rotten. Uh, Paul uses the idea of leaven and he talks about how you put a little leaven, a little yeast in this big lump of dough and it affects the whole lump so that it all swells up. And, uh, but he uses leaven. Why does Paul use leaven rather than say apples or potatoes or whatever? Why does he use leaven here? Well, they use leaven in their baking to uh, increase the size of the dough, right? As it's processing. Yeah. But he's also alluding to an old Testament passage. Yes, and isn't that leaven then something that's very active and violent or something? Yeah, so but you go back to first to Exodus, the twelfth uh, chapter, when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and they were uh, told to take a lamb and kill it and smear the blood on the doorpost and lintel, and the Lord would pass over and not take the life of the firstborn in their houses, but the death of the but the Egyptians would experience death in their houses, the death firstborn in each house. And he told them to eat the lamb along with unleavened bread. And they were actually then to do this year by year to commemorate this and have a week of unleavened bread, no leaven in the house. And uh, so the idea of leaven in many Old Testament passages, leaven is always used to talk about its impact, its influence. Um, but in many instances, it's a negative influence. And so in Exodus, the 11th chapter, get rid of the leaven. So Paul takes that idea and says, we need to remove the leaven, which he then later on in verse 8 describes as being the malice and wickedness. Um, and we need to get that out so that we can keep feast. See, the leaven back in Exodus 12 was associated with the Passover feast. And Paul says, Christ is our Passover. And if we're going to keep feast with Christ, then we need to remove the leaven. Hastily as well. Hastily? Yeah. But I mean, because isn't that also kind of what that was symbolizing? That it, without using leaven, it showed the, the fact that they needed to get out of Egypt right then. They needed to leave quickly. And when we realize sin in our life, it needs to get out then, right there. Um, and because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So he's not saying the man himself is the leaven. It's the sin that's the leaven. But the problem is that sinful influence. And if that man is going to live that way, he's got to go. Right. That doesn't sound very uh, tolerant, Jeff. And, and in Inclusive. today's society, 
Well, you know, God is not tolerant of sin. In the, uh, in the, in the, you think back to the, to the Garden of Eden, and when all Adam and Eve did was they ate some fruit they weren't supposed to eat. What was God's reaction? Out of the garden. Drove them out of the garden. Put the cherubim there with flaming swords so they couldn't come back. Now, God is forgiving, but, but his forgiveness is based upon a tremendous price that had to be paid, and that's the death of Jesus Christ. Well, I'd and, like to invite anybody in the audience that's listening to the program on the live program to give us your comments and thoughts of uh, what, you're, what you're thinking about this as uh, being tolerant, intolerant, and, and where's all of the stand in today's society and, and making application to what we're talking about. Go ahead, Jeff. I just wanted to invite people. To- well, thank you. Take the promised land, for instance. Whenever they're going into the land, God, uh, through Moses, tells them that they need to drive everybody out. And you guys remember what God's main reason for wanting everyone driven out was? So they wouldn't be influenced to worship the idols of the inhabitants of the land. Exactly. So are we going to be all that surprised that in the New Testament, in the Lord's church, and the Lord's congregation there, that he is not going to be tolerant of us leaving people in who are influencing us for the worst? Um, it shouldn't be all that shocking that we have passages like 1 Corinthians 5. I, I think, in fact, it is consistent with God's character throughout the Bible. This is so easy to see, um, but I'll, I'll stop. I was going to make an illustration real quick, but you go ahead, Jeff. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, imagine this idea of leaven leavening the whole lump. We're all, let's say, Drew and Jeff, a part of the same local church, and uh, I struggle with lying and sometimes uh, just slip of the mouth saying things I shouldn't. And then I look over there at Drew and, um, you know, he's really struggling with drinking and alcoholism and all that kind of thing. And so I look at that and I say, well, what I've got going on isn't near as bad as what Drew's got going on. And then Drew is looking over there at Jeff and Jeff is just not only an alcoholic, he's a drug dealer. And uh, he's just participating in all these horrible things, but he's still showing up on Sunday. And so Drew looks at him and he says, well, you know, I'm not as bad as Jeff over there, so I must be doing okay, and so on and so forth. And so you can see just how even letting a little sin that everyone has knowledge of slide, it can start this snowball effect of of a horrible, rotten, nasty church. That's right. Um, Yeah, Uh, we've got we've got several people chiming in here on Facebook, mainly just sending greetings. So let me just mention Ben May, Randy Farr, Jeff Carr. uh, Thank you for tuning in. And if, as Drew mentioned a minute ago, any of you who are watching and would like to send us some comments or questions, we'd be glad to take a look at those. But, you know, talking about this whole idea of tolerance, the letter to the Corinthians, this first letter is really, is, is nice balance. Because what you see is, no, we're not going to tolerate sin. And you people who are tolerating it and proud that you're tolerating it, that's not a good thing. And yet the whole letter of First Corinthians is a letter to a church that had all kinds of problems and rather than just writing them off, Paul is on his way there. He's on his way there, and he's going to get there and spend some time with them. Uh, and on his way, he's writing to them saying, you need, to, you need to change this. I'm thankful to God for you, and you need to correct that and the other thing. And that's really how we need to deal with sin. We need to love the people who need God's forgiveness, but we need to challenge them to, to, to turn their hearts to the Lord and turn away from sin. And we need to do that with ourselves. I I often like to ask people that read this and read through the entire letter to the Corinthians and say, let's say you're in Corinth and you're looking for a church to be a part of. Is the church at Corinth going to be the one you want to go to? Uh, I I don't think so either. I don't think that's where I would want to go. 
and yet Paul is still trying to work with them and get them where they're trying to go. Right. So, so the solution to error is teaching, and, and that teaching is going to prove, it's like what we lo- looked at earlier in chapter 3 when he talked about you build on the foundation and you may build uh, silver, gold, or precious stones, or wood, hay, or stubble. The, the, the fire will prove it. You're going to teach, and then there's going to be a decision that's made. There's going to be a challenge that's come, going to come, and, and then, then the result is going to become evident, whether they're willing to do God's word or obey God's word or not. You had another comment that came in. Uh, James talks about the intolerance in today's USA Today. I'm sorry, intolerance means uh, in, in today's USA, in other words, our country means, how dare you condemn me for what I want to do? The Lord condemns sin and so must we. And that's, the, I think we mentioned that before, how judging, we, we, we don't judge by his standard. We judge by our own standard and we say, how dare you judge me? Yeah, that's, that's the wrong standard. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says something interesting. He says, I wrote unto you in my epistle. Now, now let hang on here. What are we? What book of the Bible are we studying? First Corinthians. Okay. So then he says, "I wrote unto you in my epistle." So was there a zero Corinthians? Point five Corinthians. <laughs> Point five <laughs> Corinthians. <laughs> so there's a couple of possibilities here. I mean, several possibilities. But one is that Paul had previously written them uh, a letter that we don't have today. Um, and there's another possibility that he is. He's doing something like um, I would do if I say, Dear Chase, uh, today on the webcast, we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians 5 through 7. I wrote this to you uh, so that you would be able to plan for it. Well, I'm not talking about a previous letter. I'm talking about this letter. But by the time you get it, it'll be past tense. Right. So sometimes we do that. So some people, and that's called an epistolary aorist, if you've ever seen that term in a commentary or something. Um, you know, whether that's what he's doing or whether he'd written a previous letter, I don't know. Would it be, would it shake our faith if we found Paul had written a previous letter to them that we don't have in our Bibles? No, that would not be all that shocking at all. <laughs> because... You know, Paul preached a lot of sermons that we don't have recorded, mm-hmm. and he could have written a lot of letters that we don't have recorded. It'd be kind of odd to find that the only letters Paul ever wrote are the ones that we have in Scripture. Right. I'm convinced that what we have is what God intended for us to have. Yes, yes, I think you're exactly right. Um, but what did he write in the epistle? He said, I wrote to you to have no company with fornicators. And if you put a period there, that would be problematic. Why? Uh, the world is full of sinners, and that means i got to get out of the world. If you go down to the giant grocery store, your checkout person may be a fornicator. If you're I mean, working for any kind of business, you're either your customers or your employees or your employers are likely to be fornicators. Uh, if you go to school, it, it just you, and, and so, Drew, you said you'd have to do what? I'd have to get out of the world. That's what Paul says, not at all meaning with the fornicators of this world or the covetous and extortioners or with idolaters, but then must you needs to go out of the world. You'd have to go out of the world if I were telling you don't associate with any fornicators. Now, Jeff, you live in Amish country, correct? I do. Have you ever talked to an Amish person about this passage? What would they say about it? 
Um, I'm trying to think if I've ever talked with an Amish person about this passage. I recently talked with somebody I think who used to be Amish about this passage. Um, okay, because to me, if me, you, and Drew and our families all decided, you know what, we're just going to do away and we're never going to talk to anyone else about the gospel. We're, and I understand that's not every Amish person's attitude, but if we were to, to be of that mindset, well, I'm just tired of being tempted by the world. So we're going to go over here and basically live in a commune. I think you would be violating this passage. Um, I think we have a responsibility. Well, you are the light of the world. A city yeah. set on the hill cannot be hidden. Yeah. Now in Lancaster County, this is kind of interesting. I often have, we have guests come from out of state and they want to see Amish country. And, you know, I so, say, well, there's an Amish farm and, and well, this is uh, not Amish. This is a, a guy I know here. And now this next farm, this is an Amish farm. And one of the things that people are amazed by is they, they go, oh, so they, they just kind of live all kind of mixed in. They're not just right. like in a commune. Now, it is true that once you get into the valleys, uh, especially in the township where I live, in the neighboring townships, it's almost all Amish. Uh, and then on top of the ridges, it's what the Amish call English, which is what they call us. So they get the farmland and typically they bought up all that farmland. And so it's pretty solidly Amish, but, but it's all mixed in and they do business with non-Amish. Right. So they, the, the Amish really aren't a good example of people who have gone off and lived in a commune. Uh, but your point is this, Chase, your point is Christians are not supposed to just go off and live in a commune where they don't have any contact with the rest of the world. What are we supposed to be in the world? Light, a light in the world. Yeah, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, I think this is a point you're making, Chase, right? Chase? Yeah, I, you cut out for a second because of, I think my inno. Oh, oh, okay, okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so, all right, but then he's going to make this distinction. He's going to say, I ha I'm talking about a responsibility that you Corinthian brethren have toward one another, toward those who are Christians, which is different responsibility than you have toward those in the world. And he says this in verse 11, as it is, I wrote to you not to keep company. If any man that is named a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one, no, not to eat. And then he says, for what have I to do with judging them that are without? Do you not judge them that are within, but them that are without God judge, God judges. And in his conclusion, put away the wicked man from among yourselves. All right, explain that to me in verses 11 and 12 and 13, especially verse 12. What have I to do with judging them that are without? Do you not judge them that are within? And then he says, them that are without, God judges. What's he saying there? Or our viewers can chime in. I so believe he's, he's, not, he's not preaching this... These, these commands, these, these, these truths to the world, they're not Christians yet. They're still either Jews or pagans. So he's not judging them. He's going to leave that to the Lord. God's going to judge everyone. But from the group, the group that has set themselves apart, spiritually speaking, he's talking about you. You're going to judge talking, one another in that sense. And he's talking about holding one another accountable. Mm -hmm. And we're not, we're not in the business of holding the world accountable for 
for their immorality. I'm not right. saying we don't want to have an impact. We do want to have an impact. We talked earlier about we're the lights of the world, the salt of the earth. Right. When, when one enters a relationship with God that, and someone else has entered a relationship with God, you now have a relationship with each other. That's, there. that's, right. that's the point he's making. And he, the world doesn't have that relationship with you. So you're not to hold them accountable. But because of this relationship you share together with God, you do have this responsibility. And if you're neglecting it, that's not okay. The end of the verse, remove that wicked man. That's right. God's going to take care of the world, but you guys better take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Right. Randy Farr comments and says, either way, God is still the judge. Uh, and certainly God, God is going to judge whether you're a Christian or not. But as far as our judgments and removing someone from the churches, we say, and as Paul says, uh, that, that is a responsibility of ours as members of the Lord's church. Does Cain's question come into play? Am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, that's right. <laughs> we, we are to be our brother's keeper. That's right. So I've got a brother in Christ, and he's in sin, and I can be puffed up and glory in the fact that I can get along with this just fine, and I'm not doing my brother any good. Well, or, Jeff, yeah. with the experience you've had, um, you're an elder currently, correct? That's correct. Yeah, and you've served uh, as an elder in the past. Have you seen this this system that God put in place for us? Have you seen it work in your lifetime? Yes, absolutely have. Yeah, and uh, God's way works. I mean, we look at this and we say, well, this looks unloving and hateful. But although you might think it looks that way, I like you, Jeff. I've seen it work over and over again when we do it God's way. And, and by work, uh, here, let me talk about what I mean when I say I've seen it work. Um, you know, the, the goal here is for that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And I've seen times where we as a congregation have had to take note of somebody and say, you're living in sin and we withdraw ourselves from him or, or her. And it has the desired impact and they turn around and they come back to the Lord and are, are, are then able to walk with us again in God's light. And I would say that's one example of where it works. But remember, there are two things that are that are of concern here. One is the individual who's in the sin and the other is the congregation that should not be tarnished with this sin, the congregation that doesn't need to be affected by this leaven. And so there may be a case where somebody uh, is in sin and they will not repent and the congregation has to take note of them and deliver them to Satan and they don't repent. Nonetheless, God's word has accomplished the, the goal of removing the sin from the congregation so that the, the leaven doesn't spread. So Jeff, you, you're talking about, he spends all that time on these sexual immoralities or sexual immor, immor, yeah, immoralities and things like that. But he, does he ever go into this letter about other things, other responsibilities outside of the sexual uh, sins? In other words, is it just in the case when somebody's engaging in sexual immorality that you have to address the sin or are there other sins that require the same attention? Yeah, that's what I'm Yeah, saying. and of course, he, he, so he says in verse 11, I wrote unto you, if any man that is named a brother be a fornicator, or a covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one know not to eat. We might try to find what's the secret behind those sins that he lists. And I think the secret is in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where he has basically the same list, just somewhat expanded. For example, instead of just saying fornication, he gives different categories of fornication. And then he says in verse 11, and such were some of you. 
And so mm-hmm. he's talking about sins that they have had experience with there among themselves and among the people who were in the church there in Corinth. So I don't think it's any kind of specific list of sins that, that require this kind of attention. He's mentioning these sins because these are sins that had been a problem among them. Yeah, and I would say a lot of those sins that we see are, are public by nature, and it can do a lot of damage to the Lord's local church not only for the members themselves, but also for the influence that they should be having in the community when they're allowing this to happen and, and to go on. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be a little careful about making too big a, a distinction between public and private. Fornication is o- often very private sin, um, and that may become known, and you're not going to be able to do anything right. about it until you know about it. Right. With any sin, it's only when it becomes known that you're going to be able to do anything about it, and at, at that point, then it's public. Um, right. So, and as we're going to learn, it would appear some of the Corinthians have been sleeping with prostitutes, and that's become well known. Um, little, yeah, in chapter six, we'll get to that. Yeah. So, in the beginning of chapter six, Paul moves on. He he he's just taking this idea of judging and holding one another accountable. And whereas in the first place, in chapter five, he's saying you need to be holding one another accountable, judging. In in we get to chapter six, and he's saying. You ought not to be having people of the world holding you accountable, judging you for your problems with one another. So here's, let's read. Drew, can you pick it up in chapter 6 and start in verse 1 and read through verse um, verse uh, 4. Okay, I got it. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? So you've got a picture of them having problems among themselves, the two brothers in the church at Corinth, and they end up going to law, suing one another, and having somebody who's a pagan, uh, not a Christian, not a believer, determining what is the righteous thing to do between these two supposedly righteous people. Go on and get verses 5 through uh, 6. I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? Brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. So that's the irony here. You've got a brother and a brother in a spat with one another, and you're asking a non-brother, an unbeliever, to decide what the right thing to do between you is. And that just makes no sense. I have a question. He mentions the court in the legal sense, right? But I've known of brethren that wanted us bring in, quote-unquote, professionals who are counselors in human behavior to try to uh, mediate differences between those, not going to the court system, but going to other professionals and pay them for their services to help these two brothers work out. Wouldn't that come into the same category? There's there's an applicable principle there. I'm not going to say that it's ever, it's always wrong to use some kind of mediator who's not a Christian. There may be some situation where we need some expertise about a matter that neither of us really understands well enough to 
to work it out, some expertise in business or whatever. And we may need somebody out there who has that expertise. But when it comes down to a question of how do we treat each, one, each other rightly, well, let's turn to our brethren in Christ before we go looking to people who are not in Christ to decide for us what is right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by the way, this is what leads into verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? You're going to the unrighteous people to settle your problems between you. They're not even going to inherit the kingdom of God. We'll come back to that in a minute. But let's back up. As he's making this point about you guys ought to be able to settle these things among yourselves, he says in verse 2, Or know you not that saints shall judge the world? And then he'll say in verse 3, Know you not that we shall judge angels? He says, look, you're going to judge the world. You're going to judge angels. And doesn't you? that contradict what he said back in 513? Uh, yeah, right. Put, put the, the, you're not responsible for judging the world. God's going to judge them. All right, so what does he mean? So what does he mean then when he says you're going to judge the world and you're going to judge angels? I uh, thought you'd never ask. Well, I'm, I'm not going to give you the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask. I think the the best passage to illustrate this is, excuse me, Matthew, the 12th chapter. Mm. In Matthew, the 12th chapter, Jesus is talking about Jonah. Uh, Just real quickly. Jonah was sent to what city? Nineveh. Nineveh. And what did he tell them? Who did he tell Nineveh? What was he supposed to tell them? Oh, he was supposed to tell them to repent. Or you're going to be overturned in 40 days. He's supposed to tell them they're going to be destroyed. Right. And, uh, and, he, and did he want to go? Not no. Either. Why did he not want to go? He didn't like them. He didn't, like he, them. He, didn't want, he really didn't want them to be saved. He was afraid that if he went and warned them that they would repent, and knowing God, God would let them off the hook. <laughs> and he didn't want them off the hook. So this is the messenger that Nineveh gets a guy who wants to see them destroyed so much that he hopped on a boat and went the opposite direction. And of course ended up getting swallowed by a fish. And then when he did, he finally gets to Nineveh, he announces their destruction and goes and sets himself up on a hilltop to watch, hoping he gets to see the city destroyed. If you had, if you were not a Christian, if you were not a believer and the guy who comes to preach the gospel to you is this guy who comes, he says, you're going to hell and I can't wait to see it. <laughs> How effective would that be? Well, what Jesus effective. Yeah, with Jonah it was effective. That's the point Jesus makes. The men of Nineveh, in verse 41 of Matthew 12, he says, The men of Nineveh shall stand up in the judgment with this generation, the first century generation of Jesus' time, for and condemn it. The men of Nineveh are going to condemn this generation. How? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, one greater than Jonah is here. Those guys in Nineveh, they had the, the most unmotivated preacher, the most unhelpful preacher you could imagine, and they repented at that. And you guys have the Christ who's going to give his life for you in front of you, and you're not repenting at that. And so the, the point is kind of this. Were you ever in school and you took a test and, and you, you, this test was impossible. We didn't even talk about this material in class. How in the world could I possibly have, have been able to do any better on this test? We're all failing in the teacher. I have a Greek class that that happens in all the time. <laughs> yeah. and, and the teacher points at one student and says, well, you know, 
you, James made a hundred on the test. And that just, that, that takes away everybody's excuse. Everybody has been judged by James. And that's what Jesus is saying. The men of Nineveh are going to stand up in the day of judgment and they're going to judge this generation because they can say, well, we didn't have, we didn't have enough information. We didn't have the, and Jesus said, wait a minute, men of Nineveh, all they had was Jonah and they repented at that. And then he does the same thing uh, when he talks about Solomon and the queen of the South. And so, so the point is not that we're going to, we're going to sit there in the day of judgment and, and get to decide about John Doe who lives down the street, whether he goes to heaven or hell. But God's people, in that they choose to submit to God's will and, and thus stand right with God, mm -hmm. then that's going to say in the day of judgment, you know what? Anybody who didn't make that choice could have, and thus they are judged. I never so heard that, that explanation like that, Jeff. That is excellent. So that verse that says in verse 2, if, if the world is judged by you, it, could it be more... Uh, I don't want to say accurately said, but could it be said if since the world is judged because of you? Yeah, sure. And so it highlights the fact that you are supposed to be God's people who are standing in righteousness, and here's the world out here, and they're not. You're going to judge them, and yet you're asking them to settle a matter of righteousness between you? That doesn't make any sense. That's his mm. point. Mm. And of course, he says we're going to judge angels, and I think that's in the same way. Okay, we get down to chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11. And so now, is, is he still highlighting the fact, don't be going to the world to have them tell you what's righteous. Verse 9, know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. This translation says effeminate. What does yours say? Mine says effeminate. Okay. Effeminate here doesn't just mean somebody with feminine mannerisms. It's, it's, a, it's one of the roles in a homosexual relationship that's, that's in view here. Um, and then it goes on and talks about thieves and covetous and drunkards and revilers and extortioners. says, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. So we think about ourselves and our sin, and we think about our congregations and the people in our congregations. And we are all people who've come out of the world. We've been guilty of sin. And yet, he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something interesting in the Greek in verse 11, isn't there, Jeff? Well, there is. There is. I wasn't going to mention it, but since you bring it up. Uh-oh, what's that? So what you have here is a middle voice, you were washed, or you got yourselves washed. And then two passives, you were sanctified, you were justified. But for some reason, Paul says use the middle voice for the washing. You got yourselves washed. And I think it's a reference to baptism, but it's also a reference to the, the action on the part of the sinner. He has to choose to be baptized. Right. And so, uh, so he uses the middle voice there. It says, you got yourselves washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Yeah. Or in other, in other words, you know, you made this decision. You, you went out of your way to do this thing um, so that you can have your sin forgiven. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. Well, at that point, uh, that's probably a, where we're going to need to stop because we just have a few seconds left before we're out of time today, and that's a decent stopping place. We'll have to get on into the rest of Chapter 6 and Chapter 7 later. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe next week, uh, but we'll see how that goes. 
Well, I'll, I'll make a few closing comments as we close down here if we've got a few seconds. So, Jeff, you're going to be out of town for the next three weeks, right? I am. I got thinking about it later this day, and I may be able to do this webcast next week, but the, the following three or four weeks I'll be away. Right, but we will still have the podcast. I'll be, I'll be on, Drew will be on, and uh, we'll have a couple of guest speakers throughout the couple of weeks that you're gone. So you can still look for, if you're watching on Facebook, you can look for it on Jeff's Facebook page. I'm going to share it on his wall, but we're going to be broadcasting through my Facebook page as well. So just a heads up on that. Okay, so you also can go to BibleQuest.tv at any time and click on the Wednesday button for the Wednesday show or the Tuesday button for the Tuesday show and come in using the uh, the Zoom app through BibleQuest.tv. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Thanks Jeff. Thanks, Thanks, Drew. Thank you. Bye.